Who in the Twitterverse can you believe? The test of true prophecy coming up on the Love Thy Neighbor. You're listening to the Love Thy Neighbor podcast, your home for discussion and analysis of the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of Ryan Rothman. Welcome back to the Love Thy Neighbor podcast. The last time I checked, we were still the only podcast exclusively dedicated to the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of Reinhold Niebuhr. I'm Cliff Bailey, and I'm joined by co-hosts Zach Narrison and Aaron Duncan. Fellas, I'm still rolling that interview with Eli Valentin around in my head from last week. I don't know about you guys. It was really good. Uh, yeah, it's the highlight of one of the interviews I've done with you guys. Isn't he just like the craziest? I mean, not craziest, but he's just so much fun. Like he's just such a fun guest to have. Yeah. I think one of the things I appreciate about him is just was like not afraid to answer the questions, like, you know, asking him about why why is Niebuhr, I mean, what would Niebuhr say about the place of the church and the, you know, in affecting yeah. change in society? He was just like, I don't know. <laughs> and then that point where he brought up funny. from that obscure, you know, like one of the Niebuhr's last books, Man and His Communities, where Niebuhr like regretted using biblical language <laughs> and it's great and i was just thinking gosh that is his career like what do you get if you take that away but it was a great discussion i'm glad i'm glad that we had him on and yeah he wasn't afraid to bring up tough stuff like that um but yeah it's one of the longer episodes we've actually had in a while and i i still don't think we've scratched the surface scratched the surface with eli so um make sure you all listen to that one because it was it was a lot of fun well, today we're back to Niebuhr's Beyond Tragedy, but it might be a good time to tell you all about what we have coming up. Leading up to the midterm elections, the entire month of October, actually, is completely packed, um, filled to the brim with the goods. We have some great interviews coming up that we're crazy excited about. The very first week of October, we will be with uh, Niebuhr scholar Josh Modelin. Uh, who just edited that great big old Oxford handbook on Niebuhr that I was pimping on Twitter a few weeks ago. Uh, this book is beautiful. Read it. Psh, I own it. But, but no, I haven't read it yet. I will read it. But it is packed with so many contributions, so many current thinkers. I'm stoked to get into this thing. And Dr. Modlin, who, uh, who we will have on here, edited this beast with the great Niebuhr scholar, really the godfather of Niebuhr studies, Dr. Robin Lovin. So that's the first week of October. The week right after that, we will be interviewing Matt Anderson, who's a PhD student at Oxford University, who's doing some really exciting new work in Niebuhr land as well. And then the week after that, we are interviewing Amos Young, uh, who is both Dean of Theology and Dean of Intercultural Studies at Fuller Theological Seminary out there in Cali. Um, just a packed house, man. And the, the final week of October, talk about scary for Halloween. We will be reading and responding to that new work. I'm putting work in air quotes. That new work that came out that is uh, defending Christian nationalism. So that should be fun, fun in a tear your bleeding eyeballs out of your skull kind of way. Uh, okay, so let's get into it. Aaron, you want to read for us? Sure. So this section that Niebuhr brings up in the fifth chapter of Beyond Tragedy 
begins in Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 1 through 32. Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning the shepherds who are tending my people, you have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not attended to them. Behold, I am about to attend to you for the evil of your deeds, declares the Lord. Then I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of the countries where I have driven them and bring them back to their pasture, and they will be fruitful and multiply. I will also raise up shepherds over them, and they will tend to them, and they will not be afraid any longer, nor be terrified, nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell surely. And this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. Therefore, behold, these day, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they will no longer say, as the Lord lives, who brought up the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives, who brought up and led back the descendants of the households of Israel from the north land and from all the countries where I had driven them, then they will live on their own soil. As for the prophets, my heart is broken within me. All my bones tremble. I have become a drunken, like a drunken man, even like a man overcome with wine because of the Lord and because of his holy words, for the land is full of adulterers and for the land mourns because of the curse. The pastures of the wilderness have dried up. Their course also is evil and their might is not right. For both prophet and priest are polluted. Even in my house, I have found their wickedness, declares the Lord. Therefore, their way will be like slippery paths to me. They will be driven away into gloom and fall down in it. For I will bring calamity upon them, the year of their punishment, declares the Lord. Moreover, among the prophets of Samaria, I saw an offensive thing. They prophesied by Baal and led my people Israel astray. Also among the prophets of Jerusalem, I have seen a horrible thing the committing of adultery and walking in falsehood. And they strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one has turned back from his wickedness. All of them have become to me like Sodom and her inhabitants like Gomorrah. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts concerning the prophets, behold, I am going to feed them woodworm and make them drink poisonous water. For from the prophets of Jerusalem, pollution has gone forth into all the land. Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who are prophesying to you. They are leading you into futility. They speak a vision of their own imagination, not from the mouth of the Lord. They keep saying to those who despise me, the Lord has said, you will have peace. And as for everyone who walks in stubbornness of his own heart, they say calamity will not come upon you. But who has stood in the counsel of the Lord that he should see and hear his word? Who has given heed to his word and listened? Behold, the storm of the Lord has gone forth in wrath. Even in whirling tempest, it will swirl down on the head of the wicked. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has performed and carried out the purposes of his heart. And in the last days, you will clearly understand it. I did not send these prophets, but they ran. I did not speak to them, but they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, then they would have announced my words to my people. 
and would have turned them back from their evil way and from their evil of their deeds. And I, a God, who, am I a God who is near, declares the Lord, and not a God far off? Can a man hide himself in hiding places so I do not see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord? I have heard what the prophets have said who prophesy falsely in my name, saying, I have a dream. I had a dream. How long is there anything in the hearts of the prophets who prophesy falsehood, even these prophets of the deception of their heart, who intend to make my people forget my name by their dreams, which they relate to one another, just as their fathers forgot my name because of Baal? The prophet who has a dream may relate his dream, but let him who has my word speak my word in truth. What does straw have in common with grain, declares the Lord? Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer which shatters a rock. Therefore, behold, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord, who steal my words from each other. Behold, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord, who use their tongues and declare the Lord declares. Behold, I am against those who have prophesied false dreams, declares the Lord, and related them and led my people astray by their falsehoods and reckless boasting. Yet I did not send them or command them, nor do they furnish this people the slightest benefit, declares the Lord. Oh, boy. Now that is much better. That's from an NASB. Thank you, Aaron. Now, I think we could all I think we could all agree that Jeremiah is P.O.'d at false prophets. So if we look at it from so the week before we uh, interviewed Eli, we were on the 400 to one chapter where Micaiah was going up against the 400 prophets and it was more focused on him kind of going up kind of a showdown between him and the kings but this is more like Jeremiah's standing in the place of a Micaiah type thinking gosh look at all these stupid dumb false prophets who are just you know telling people what they want to hear and giving them security and things like this so let's see what Niebuhr has to say about this reading this whole chapter by the way I started kind of getting palpitations because I, I love this chapter so much. And I just hope that we can do it justice um, because there are just so many really good parts of this chapter that I don't want to leave out. So Niebuhr divides this chapter into basically five parts with an introduction. Once again, the introduction is kind of the rub. He kind of introduces where the rubber meets the road for this chapter. And we'll talk about that here in a second. But then I've titled these four sections that Niebuhr breaks down the first one, the illusion of security. The second one, the reality that we have some security. Uh, the third part is power, pride, and injustice. The fourth part is the task of the true prophet. And the fifth part is the test of the true prophet. So, so basically what he's setting up in this very first part, this introduction, um, the rub, if you will, is he's going to make this claim that those who claim truth on behalf of God are always either a fool, a knave, or a prophet. And Niebuhr broaches the, the question, how can we tell who is who? It's kind of like my question at the top. Who do you believe on Twitter? Who do you believe on the nightly news? Who do you believe? Uh, do you believe Trump or, or Biden or, or whatever? Uh, how do we know who the true prophet is or who the, the person is that we're supposed to believe? Um, and from, uh, from this reading of, of this Jeremiah passage, what, what does Niebuhr kind of land on? 
So he says false prophecy, um, a, a false prophecy is something that adds ultimate significance to partial judgments, mm. right? And that ultimate significance is the sort of religious, like God or something that is ultimate in meaning. Did this remind you at all of the past couple chapters of the the ark and the temple that division and also the um oh dang it there's another another uh, i think it was the tower of like our our partial particular interests versus universal interests type of thing yeah no it definitely reminds you of that because in the later in the section i think niebuhr does relate ultimate significance to symbolic representation mm-hmm. as well that's kind of where things can break down so easily um so yeah so let me let me give us this definition that he does so he asked the question how is one to detect this false element and jeremiah's answer neva brings up is that a false prophet betrays himself by offering false security to people offering false security to, to people. So, and to put it in a more biblical way, the mark of false prophecy is that it assures the sinners, uh, it assures the sinner peace and security within terms of his sinful ambitions. So uh, coming from the idea that, you know, if, if we go back to like the 400 to one, the 400 prophets are telling Ahab what he wants to hear. You know, he's giving him security you know, when perhaps he shouldn't have such security, you know, so he's basically telling him what to hear type of thing. Well, and I, you know, I'd, I'd love to break this down with you guys. He says the prophecy is false or uh, the false prophet preaches security to those who make their own inclinations, the law of life, and who thereby despise and defy God. The prophecy is false because a life which defies the laws of life in order to gain security destroys what it is seeking to establish. The mark of false prophecy is that it assures the sinner peace and security within terms of uh, sinful ambition. I think there's like a lot to break down in that. You know, there's the element of like, he, he's saying that this is a self-destructive system, right? That like what they create destroys them. Um, but it's also kind of gives like a tethering point, making it peace and security, you know, as the kind of tethering point that they're going to, like I guess not the tethering point. I guess that would be more the covering point. They cover over their sinful ambition, or the sinful ambition of others, really, with peace and security. Um, but I think maybe there's maybe Niebuhr could have used different words there because I think sometimes peace and security are kind of inherently positive terminology. Um, and I almost think that there's something more sinister going on. You know what I mean? Well, that's there, why it's so sinister. Is because the prophet is preaching such peace and security mm-hmm. um and that's how you want to feel you want to feel good but it's, he's not telling you the deeper darker secret that you are a sinner and all this is temporary mm-hmm. and that all of your kingdoms are bound to fall you know um, yeah, part of the thing is and i think this is maybe just my problem but i think it's a problem for many people is when i read uh, assures the center of peace and security um he's promising them something other than peace and security. You know what I mean? He's promising them almost like a, you could almost start adding there like a false peace and false security. Yeah. And that's the next section actually, is that yeah. when, when oh, yeah. the prophet. Yeah. So I think that like kind of where we can leave it off with the introduction here is he's basically just saying that a false prophet is kind of guaranteeing peace 
and security. We could say like the kingdom without repentance or something like that. We call it uh, this we uh, a utopia without yeah. um, without you know being mindful of our limitations type of thing. I think yeah. one of the the thing is as well is that Niebuhr says that the world itself is really insecure, mm-hmm. and so it's not the fact that we strive for security. It's quite natural to have that when you have things like natural disasters and conflicts with your mom dad your neighbors and whatnot it's, it's natural to like want to have security but it's like the manners in which we pursue those securities which you know and the completion of what we think is attainable in that security yeah and this is oh, what I, gets us into the next part go ahead zach well i was just gonna say um it's like a it's like a piece or, or a a security that's not really paid for it's like somebody offering you something that they didn't actually pay for they're just like yeah. offering it to you so the next section is uh, the illusion is part one, the illusion of security. And basically here he makes the argument that we all want security. This is a basic human need. Like we all want to feel secure and safe and that type of thing. And we always tend to assign religion to that task, to that problem of meeting that need. And it, it kind of reminds me of what he did with magic a couple of weeks ago of treating religion kind of like this thing just to get what we want. Religion um, is our way of kind of guaranteeing for ourselves, as illusory as it may be, that we have some sense of security here when actually life is quite tragic and temperamental, you know? Um, And this is what he says about false religion. Uh, He says false religion ultimately says that ultimate security is prematurely appropriated and corrupted so that so that it assures man peace in his sins and not through the forgiveness of his sins this part here kind of reminds me i've been reading nt Wright a lot lately and he'll talk about how we tend to kind of divorce cross and kingdom um that always if you look at israel um there when when they are uh held in captivity they have to be forgiven before liberation can come. You know, there has to be a moment of, of, of repentance, you know, of their idol worship and all that type of stuff before the liberation can come. And I think what Niebuhr's kind of saying here is that people, that, that false prophets promise a liberation without um, repentance. You know, uh, they will promise peace and security uh, without kind of the prior notion of your fallenness. I don't know if that makes sense. It might be helpful to like think of like a practical way that that would come out. So like, maybe this is a more practical way to put it, that the prophet wants to make you feel good without first making you feel uneasy. Does that make sense? I think it makes yeah. sense. I, well, I, I was just trying to, or maybe like what, what is, how do we do that currently? You know what I mean? Like, cause that was one of the first things I thought of is I was like, man, I, I, this is something that happens with Niebuhr all the time. It's like, I read his stuff and I go, oh, like, this is, this is great. Yeah, yeah, And then I like try to search for like, where could I f- actually find that? Because I feel like this in- strong intuition, like that I have experienced this before. I know what he's talking mm-hmm. about. Well, I was having trouble, like, and he'll get into examples here in a second of this. I think there's probably some levels like of distinction here. So when you say the prophet wants to make you feel good, it, it can give like this illustration that someone is sort of, 
cunningly trying to benefit themselves, which is probably the case in some places. But at the end of this this chapter, Niebuhr says we're all false prophets mm-hmm. to a degree that we have some sort of you know tension where we want to make our own imaginations and desires, our own hearts, the will of God or mm-hmm. the ultimate significance. Um, but as you and I were talking before recording, there are some you know things on the material ground that kind of like I, I think at least produce these sorts of reasons. If you think about Israel as an example. Under King David, um, we read that chapter on David and his son Solomon, that David was, uh, Solomon reigned in a pair of peace, but it was mm-hmm. only done from the sort of warring mm-hmm. and tribal things of his father. So you get this false sense of completion of peace and security. Um, and from that sort of sense of completion comes complacency. Mm-hmm. Um, and idealisms about who we are as a nation and those sorts of things. Um, if, I mean, if you think about bring it up, the, the word Jerusalem is Jerusalem, the city of peace. And there comes that sort of like extrapolation of self-deception. So yeah. even the prophets themselves are in on their own deceiving. Mm-hmm. They're self-deceived and they're deceiving. So. I'm I'm thinking of modern day. Imagine when Trump is in power, the way that Fox News operates is yeah. that it's always trying to sing the victory um, without implanting in your heart a sense of uneasiness um, about the position that the country is in. Um, and it totally flip flops, you know, when somebody else is in power. But so my mind wants to go to Fox News of telling you what you want to hear, giving you that security of your own beliefs and, and your own trust mm-hmm. in Donald Trump or something like that without giving you an uneasiness there. Um, but then I'm reminded that this very similar thing does happen. Um, on the media that I consume as well of trying to kind of guarantee me some sense of security in what I already believe that it is true to a certain degree without adding that extra layer of uneasiness uh, deep in my soul about, you know, this complete thing can't be totally true. I need someone to challenge me in the media just as much as kind of puff me up, if that makes sense. And we rarely get that. Do you think this this sort of like issue you're raising? Let me back to it. So whenever I have like conversations with my more conservative friends and family members, they're always saying, "Well, that's just your opinion." And how can you know the truth? It's almost like they're re- recasting Jesus's question to Pilate, like, "What is what, what is truth?" Mm-hmm. When when you start presenting to them, like, "Well, you know, Trump caused a January sixth riots or he lost the election factually and they're like that's just your opinion like how do you know Mm -hmm. um do you think the consequence of this the prophet makes you want to feel good with but not uneasy has led to the kind of situation we're in now with that yeah i think so totally like everybody niebuhr brings this up in nature and destiny everybody has an easy conscience yeah everybody has an easy conscience Everybody wants to feel good about themselves and about their beliefs and they want to feel that security and religion. And we could also include philosophy and there's a certain kind of scientism and there is uh, there are all these kind of fields, uh, uh, all these disciplines um, that we will kind of extract 
and uh, recruit to our to our own satisfactions, our own desires to assuage our conscience and mm-hmm. make us feel better. Um, so in a lot of ways, a lot of what we consume, whether it's media or our own chosen discipline, um, be it philosophy or theology or whatever, we're always listening to the people that already agree with us type mm-hmm. of thing to assuage our fears of insecurity, you know, assuage our insecurities. Um, and but there always needs to be that somebody, that something or somebody who is sticking a thorn in our side. Um, and I'm not like I have some people that kind of operate like that. I think Niebuhr operates like that for all of us to a degree mm-hmm. is that because at the end of this, I think you just mentioned right at the end of this, he says that we're all false prophets yeah. uh, to a degree. Right. And everybody that you listen to, you can kind of point these types of things out. But a starting point, Niebuhr is saying, is at least the coming coming to terms with the reality that security is an illusion. Yeah. That you're never quite safe in your own ideology and the way that you uh, understand the world. Uh, in your this is why I mean I, something I'm preaching on this week is Paul saying work out your salvation with much fear and trembling. Wow, this is good material. I should probably be making s- sermon notes here, but uh, there should all there should always be an uneasiness attached to everything that we're doing. Yeah. Or we succumb to the false prophet. The significance of this, and then we're going to get into this in a second, is be, the reason why we need to have an uneasiness, Niebuhr points out in this chapter, is that if all we have is, you know, uncritical security in ourselves, in our country, in our religion, that will lead to disillusionment when we face the harsh realities of the world. Yeah. Like, he gives this example of when he was a child running around in the field and taking shelter underneath. I love that, yeah. Yeah, taking shelter underneath, like, what is it, the corn? I don't know what it is, a little shed or something Yeah. during the storm. And he's seeing all the storms and stuff happening and the shelter is providing this protection and from the natural elements. And he says that itself can make you feel that nothing can stop you or that nature yeah. can never, like, get you. But when it actually comes in, like blows over the barn, then you're like, oh, crap. <laughs> like, what am I going to do now? And he almost equated that to a type of religious experience. Yeah. Right? yeah he and, but it is, remember, it's the kind of religion that he criticized a couple of chapters ago and calling it magic. Yeah. That's the kind of magical religion that you think you can garner security. Um, uh, but we need a religion that's going to kind of is capable of casting us into those crises yeah you know and making us think twice i want to i want to get your thoughts on this zach so niebuhr in this section kind of kind of kind of criticizes a psalm of the bible psalm 91 okay i don't know if you guys remember this and let me just read a little bit of psalm 91 you who live in the shelter of the most high this is nrsb who abide in the shadow of the almighty will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence, he will cover you with his pinions and under his wings, you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night or the arrows that fly by day or the pestilence that stalks in the darkness or the destruction that wastes at noonday. 
a thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked because you have made the Lord your refuge, the most high, the most high your dwelling place. No evil shall befall you. No scourge come near your tent and on and on and on. Niebuhr says, this is a product of that. What do you, what do, you do with this, Pastor Zach? Probably, I would say that, um, I mean, I don't necessarily think it's always bad to criticize the Psalms. Like, for instance, it's probably not best to think about bashing, the, take another Psalm, bashing babies' heads against rocks. Um, but I think the emotion is real. You know what I mean? Um, I think what I see is a, I mean, I think Niebuhr is right, but also wrong in the sense that um, I, I see like a, an act of, like a statement of defiance, a statement of faith over um, and against the need to despair. You know what I mean? Um, I've always guessed it, and it, probably I've always seen it in light of the later statements of like how faith, what Niebuhr says at the end of this section, actually, where he talks about how faith helps us to transcend um, the meaninglessness of life and the despair of life, because we look to an ultimate vindication uh, in the end. It, it would be problematic if we had a religion completely based on this one psalm, right? If this was like a proof text for like this, this central, you know, state of your religious being, that would be problematic. And I would say also, I think that like, it provides a framework for feeling victorious. Like it's giving us, a, 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 like, I mean, they warn you over and over again in seminary, don't, don't form your doctrine based on the Psalms. And I'm always skeptical. I always, when I use Psalms in like the worship setting or when I preach on them, it's always in regards to um, what is like the framework that's being laid out for us. Like what's the framework of worship? So a great example would be like lament Psalms, right? There's a ton of complaining that goes on in there, but the purpose of that is it's like showing us how to worship and showing us how to bring our lament before God. Um, so it's giving us a framework to operate by. And so I think there is a time and a place to have this framework of victory and a, a feeling of triumph especially when you're in a time of de being destitute or when you're in a time of um, it, it's a tool for defiance against, against those feelings and against that uh, alternative narrative. I think Niebuhr's point in all this as well as the matter perspective of where the significance lies that all things, I mean, you, you have it here, but um, the all things work for the good mm -hmm. is different than saying all things are good. There's an example. I remember having a Wait, can you say that again? I'm sorry. That was what? so good. What? All things work for the good, not that all things are good. Right. right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and just as a, a comical example of a conversation I had with a family member, she, she said to me once that, you know, um, God will not abandon me. He does all things good for me. And I posed the question, well, what about people who are impoverished or suffer all these desolations? Like, well, I can't, you know, God put them there for a reason. And it's mm -hmm. like, bull, bull crap. <laughs> well, what if God puts you yeah. in, you know, yeah. how would you poverty feel? <laughs> for a yeah. reason? Yeah. How would you feel with that? Would you feel like an injustice? Like with Job, mm -hmm. when he's going and talking to his friends, like, is not the Lord the guy who uh, tells all the judges to think this way and whatnot? There's no, there's no right. mediator between heaven and earth. I think Job says, so yeah, it's a bit stupid. But. So to read this full quote, because I think it's so good. And, 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 oh, go ahead, Zach. Well, I mean, but he does say, you know, he says, uh, 
It's speaking of this psalm that we just read. It is an easy. It is easy to be tempted to the illusion that the child of God will be accorded special protection from the capricious forces of the natural world or special immunity from the vindictive passions of angry men. And in one sense, like that's a true that that, that is true. And then other sense that it's also true. You know what I mean? Like in the sense of like there is a promise within faith that we will transcend those things which ail us. But I but think it, it doesn't also include the possibility that God will intervene here and now do you think it's yeah. transcend or be renewed but explain the difference well transcend would be like there's one day we're going to be taking a taken away from all of these sorts of things because i yeah whatever but no, but renews like things will be made right i think more that one yeah the latter yeah because but i think that's for a, a that's, bigger biblical conversation true, yeah. go ahead zach i think that is going along with like the you know, the eschatological vision of Jesus, like there's a, a desire that like, I, I wouldn't encourage someone not to pray that God would help them, that God would intervene in this life. I think that's very biblical, especially the new Testament, especially Jesus. Um, but I think it's the illusion, right. That, that they will be, that they will always be, you know, and I think the biggest vindication of that, the biggest indication that they won't be uh, is that Jesus dies on the cross. Right. It's the, the death on the cross is an indication that they won't be given special protection from capricious forces of the world. Right. But it's also a vindication that they will in the sense that there's a promise of resurrection. That's right. You know, what I mean, yeah. it's kind of a both statement. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let me read this uh, this section right here, because I thought it was so good. And Aaron alluded to it a little bit. Niebuhr says, and by the way, right after criticizing Psalm 91, he then says the Stoics get it more right than Psalm 91 and says they at least understand that there's suffering in the world and there's nothing you can do about it. But then he comes back to this, this statement. He says the ultimate security of a noble faith. And earlier he was talking about uh, a false religion, I think is kind of the way they termed it, false religion. And now we have a noble faith, false religion, noble faith, the noble faith, the ultimate security of a noble faith lies in the assurance that, quote, all things must work together for good, end quote, but not that all things are of themselves good or that the faithful will escape vicissitudes, which are of themselves evil rather than good. So it's a, so there's two things that come to mind when I'm thinking about this, is that what must be integrated into a true faith or a noble faith, what Niebuhr calls, is a process of goodness, kind of invading the world, eschatologically maybe, uh, Holy Spirit, we can use that kind of language. And the second part is hope, that we should be like those who live with hope, right? Um, and But at the same time, we need to warn ourselves against these false assurances of security, because it's just not realistic. It's just not reality. And it's not biblical either. The, the Bible never beat around the bush about how hard life is. Well, maybe we should move into this next section on why false prophecy is false. And then what sorts of securities have we found? Yeah, so we have, so part two, I labeled, we have found some securities. Yeah. Um, and he, the probably the biggest one that he mentions is that he says that technology is not evil in itself. Um, and it, it has supplied us with kind of a modicum of security. Um, and he mentions modern medicine in this section. I really didn't get a whole lot more out of that. D- does he have more in part three? I know that in, pa- in part, th- 
uh, part two. Part two. Yeah. I know that in part three he gets into more of the prophetic. But what 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 else did you take? That, from part two? I mean, I have like seven points from part two. <laughs> from part oh, two. that's funny. Yeah, it was phenomenal. Um, I mean, he he mentions that the the main point of security that I think the false prophets, um, and modern uh, people have found is security and power. That's where our security lies. And then he's really forceful here. He says, all power leads to injustice and pride. I saw that too. And I, yeah, I had to do a double take. I don't know what to make of this because that is very heavy handed for yeah. a neighbor to say that. What do you mean, that, you mean that's heavy handed? That, that's totally Niebuhr, dude. That's like through It's not Niebuhr. Niebuhr. Niebuhr is all about power is ambiguous and it can lead to good or evil. Um, to say straight, to say outright, all power leads to injustice, doesn't sound totally like Niebuhr to me. That sounds like that's so weird because that sounds like just like Niebuhr. Like I wouldn't think he would say it any other way because what he's saying is essentially what he always says, and that is that like don't don't be pretentious enough to believe that once you gain power, you'll be able to solidify some sort of new way of doing things, which will you know, absolutely. But to say necessarily that all power leads to injustice, yeah. straight out like that. Now, the way you put it, Zach, I'm I'm on board with that. That that power you can't be secure even in power. That is more Niburian way to put it than saying all power leads to injustice. Yeah, I think on the similar note where Zach is going, that I was going to say, you know, maybe Niebuhr, if we're if we're going to like try to um do that comparison and make make it all fit together like in a systematic interpretation of neighbor um perhaps he would have better qualified with like modern man's attachment to power necessarily leads to injustice and pride okay because he goes into the uh, the next point i have written down that modern irreligiousness is due to um our view of self-sufficiency so if we view mm -hmm. power as the means to be self-sufficient, as right. an, as escape from a natural phenomenon, and whatever you know, modern uh, you know, trade wars or modern conflicts, and yes, they will always lead to yeah. I like fairness. the if then yeah, the yeah. self-sufficiency because I think when he adds in the part, well, it might be in this one. I thought it was in part three. In part three, he starts getting into how when we trust that security yes and that's when we it kind of transmutes into a form of well, pride he has it written here in this section that security through power means insecurities for those who lack power okay so that okay. is probably that sort of tr that fidelity Securities to power yeah. yeah um it, yeah he does it is much now that i'm rethinking this section he is very he's critiquing this from this lens because it goes on to say that the human imagination transmutes nature's harmless will to live into a sinful will to power, but the will to power always hides behind the natural will to live. Then he gives the the France versus Germany example. Yeah, we'll get there. We'll get there. But I, I, just to kind of cap the discussion on this part, yeah, he's he's not critiquing all power, even though he says all power. But then he comes back and says, yeah you cannot deny the goodness that technology has brought us in mm -hmm. modern medicine at least and he uses yeah. modern medicine as a as something that is redeemable about technology and actually i think that he says that basically you'd have to be an idiot to think that that 
technology doesn't do anything good. Exactly. I mean, and, and in the conclusion of this, one of the conclusions of the section before he gets to this debacle between real realism versus moralism, he makes the point that collective security is more preferable to anarchy of self-interest. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, he's not saying, I mean, in, in, in the collective uh, self-security, you do have coercion, power plays, and all that sort of stuff, so... Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So as we get into this third section, I think this is where he takes the major turn of the chapter. Um, here he says that, you know, while we have found some security in technology, um, remember, we still have an illusion, you know, of, mm-hmm. of totalizing security. Um, but while we have found some security, we quote, do not, this is in Niebuhr's words, we do not see to what degree the security of power leads to both injustice and pride. So even though we found some security in technology, we, want, we that makes us kind of naive to actually the bad things that we're doing to it. Um, and I have a follow-up quote from him. He says, if this age is essentially irreligious, the basic cause of our ir- irreligion is our sense of self-sufficiency. This is what Aaron was talking about earlier. The achievements of science and techniques have beguiled us into a false complacency. We have forgotten the frailty of man. So Niebuhr thinks technology, we have taken a a step toward, and I think Zach, you preached on this uh, a few months ago about how technology is kind of, go ahead. Well, I've just been preaching on it off and on. And actually I have my big question mark on this section because for what Niebuhr is experiencing in his time, is only a partial to what we're experiencing now and what I think we'll experience in the near future based just on the reading I was doing. And so when he says like a line that just comes after just your quote, he says, we have overlooked the fact that no medicine for senility, uh, senility uh, can be found by even the most advanced science. And I wonder how totalizing that, I guess, irreligious or self-sufficient uh, response will be when our medicine has advanced, right? Like, cause he says, we haven't found this yet, but what happens when people start actually living for two, 300 years? Or what happens when people actually begin to transcend death in some sense? And a, you know, I mean, I, I think death is still totalizing. I think it's an ulti- it, you can't escape it. But um, at the same time, like, will we be able to shake that illusion, right? Right now he can be like, you know, you're, you're, it's bringing you to a false complacency. But I almost wonder if in the near future, people will look at it, what he's saying as, something that was actually holding them back, right? If they, that, that there was people like Niebuhr who was holding them back from really pursuing eternal life, you could say, you know what I mean? Or immortality. Well, it how was, do you think he the, would answer that? I mean, he, he gives, okay. So the medicine about senility thing, I was actually thinking this is already outmoded because they do have some medicines that can help uh, slow senility. Um, but let's look at the ultimate, which is death. You, uh, okay. People can claim that there is, you know, an end to death on the horizon or some, something like that. I'll believe it when I see it. But it doesn't, uh, I don't, I don't, even if we can achieve such a status, we'll still be dependent upon something. I still think that we will die. Uh, yeah. Whether that be in a hundred years or a thousand years, when, I don't know. Yeah. There will still be some die. death that Niebuhr calls. Uh, he says this, that we have failed to consider that the mystery of death still challenges human pride within nature you can't get rid of death completely it will still always challenge human pride i think though when it's temporally close 
it's a little bit easier to say that. But I think that statement becomes almost irrelevant. Like, I'll just give you an example. You know, my brother works in a neurosurgery department. I don't know if we've talked about this before, but he uh, he's working on becoming a neurosurgeon. And, you know, he was just talking to me about a basically a project they're doing that's already made it to human trials where um, they're taking cell. I, I'm just going to totally sh shoot this from what he told me. So I, I may not be saying it correctly, but you get the idea. Um, he's taking, they're taking cells and reverting them to stem cells. And then they're able to regenerate that their project is specifically to the central nervous system, but it's actually going to be applied to just about any organ in your body. And so when you can regenerate something with, from stem cells, you can prolong life. I mean, hypothetically very long. And so it's like, once those technologies become a part of life and you can go to the doctor and you can, I mean, it's still, death is still a reality. I don't think people are going to escape death, yeah. but like, yeah. it's a lot harder to say what Niebuhr saying when, you know, if, if you can go to the doctor and you have Alzheimer's and they can cure it because they can just revert your cells back. I mean, they can revert, you know what I mean? They can basically fight there's back. Right. There'll still be conflicts though. There'll still be wars, natural, wars, natural disasters. There'll still be buses that can run you over. Yeah. Big, big buses because yeah, more stop people. your heart immediately. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And there were, and the longer that we live, the longer we'll have to live with that fear of yeah. someday I might get hit by a bus or go down in a plane crashing or something like that. We haven't cured death yeah. just by stem cells, but yeah. I, I see what you're saying, Zach. So this is why Niebuhr, we're going to see Niebuhr plunge even deeper into the modern condition um, when he brings up uh, the meaninglessness mm -hmm. of, of life. Um, so I'll start. Okay. He still brings his years to an end, like a tale that is told. Sometimes this abyss of death suddenly opens uh, b before the proud modern uh, and the peril of meaninglessness threatens his security. That is the significance of the philosophies of pessimism, which periodically break through the optimism and self-sufficiency of modern irreligion and try, and now he casts some shade at Bertrand Russell, and he says, and try with Bertrand Russell to erect a structure of meaning upon the firm foundation of unyielding despair. No ultimate sense of meaning can be gained from the conquest of nature. I need, do I need to repeat? I need to repeat this. No ultimate sense of meaning can be gained from the conquest of nature. I don't care how long you live with your stem cells, Zach. No ultimate sense of meaning can be gained from the conquest of nature. For in the words of a medical leader, more realistic than most moderns, quote, nature intends to kill man and will succeed in the end. I, I'm not, I want to clarify. I'm not saying that I, I believe that this it will actually help us transcend death. What I'm saying is though, that I think that the, the impression will become much more totalizing. And I think that anyone saying what Niebuhr is saying would be considered uh, a detriment to progress. You know what I mean? Well, they're, they're maybe then I think you bring up a good point, Zach, because really all that, that is changing is that we need to update Niebuhr's language to be more effective to these types. He was using, uh, I guess, you know, if you take a, a Niebuhr 300 years before him, he, uh, he'll, it'll be some guy saying, oh, we still haven't found a cure for the Black Plague. You know, I don't know, you know, something like that, even though we found it today. And then they'll say like, uh, we still haven't found something for death. Really, we're just kind of moving it. So we just have to kind of move the things that we still can't save us from. But ultimately, it's still death. Like we still can't save ourselves from that. 
and and then the next step is ultimately meaninglessness like that uh, that the concepts of nature still can't give us meaning the reason i'm i'm so hammering this point is that i think there's an attitude change that is going on and and just just having done a lot of reading on this topic and that attitude is you know there's i I used this in a sermon just a little bit ago but there's this scientist that basically is saying like you know, people you used to, the best response we had to death was to console people and to help them accept their death and to, you know, go out well and so yada, yada. But he basically says, he comes out and says that those people are just an impediment now. They're a problem. They're actually lulling us into a death. Is that necessary. new though? That, I think that line of reasoning has been around since at least the 18th century. People have talked about, uh, talked like that about, you know, oh, the, the tearful pessimists, you know, they're just in the way of progress. Uh, I, what I'm just arguing, two things, that position hasn't changed. They just changed topics, you know, where they're just, they've kicked the can down the road. Our position, the Niburian position doesn't change. It just changes rhetorically to meet a new need. But, re- but ultimately, we are still fallible, limited creatures. And still, ultimately, the conquest of nature cannot give us meaning. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't know if that makes sense. So I, I hear what you're saying. It makes, it they, makes they sense. Are different. They are different now, but they're really the same as the concepts. But I imagine this uh, just like a rhetorical debate about this. And I'm trying to like imagine like what that would be like. And I'm imagining, you know, I, I think that the other side almost has a certain believability about it. You know, the Look up how Trotsky man. writes. I mean, it, it's, it's the same <laughs> type of utopian... A belief like a blind optimism in in our abilities to conquer nature and to conquer well, uh, the perils of humanity I mean, it's kind of like with you call like, it realistic new technology like weather machines like i think in china they can like regulate like mm-hmm. the way we- weather patterns come but they can't yeah. stop a freaking tsunami from like starting off their uh, eastern seaboard right you know and say that we do well, like yeah. conquer nature the nature we conquer then becomes the new thing that is going to limit us yeah um, so well, and, there's really no escaping nature as our, as our I'm not adversary. adversary. Yeah. yeah. I'm not saying I'm not, I don't truly believe that. I, I don't, what I'm saying though, is that it's very persuasive. You know what I mean? When somebody can, you know, heal someone, it's like my wife, you know, she got blood, blood clot from her knee all the way into her lower back. And they basically went in with a tiny little machine with a little thing. And like, they picked away at it for like five days in a row. Right. And it used to be that you had to cut someone's leg open and literally cut cut the entire vein open and pull the blood clot out. So really invasive, but this was incredible technology. Um, but let, yeah, let me, let me put it to you this that. way, Zach. So there's always been that person who's arguing from your perspective or arguing that um, the perspective that you're arguing from, uh, that, that we have turned a corner, that you people are just a detriment. There have also always been the people like Niebuhr or the people like me who have who would maybe be called the detriment. But there's also always been people like you right now, Zach, who will be like, things have changed and I don't know how we're going to talk to these new people, you know, and I understand Niebuhr's point, but how are we going to get that message across? But, and there's always been my kind of people, 
who's <laughs> been like, but no, uh, we have to change our rhetoric. We have to change the way that we attack these new people. Um, they're not always one step ahead. We're just always locked in the same dialogue you, ever since Roman Catholicism or ever this, since the, the Romans. This sounds just like the debate Niebuhr brings up between the realists and the moralists, mm-hmm. which he probably just means the idealists here, right? Yeah. Um, he's, he, in his distinction, he says the, the realists, they understand the reality of power, but they think that everything is governed by power to such a degree that that is more that we can regulate we, we should just like um regulate morality based upon that principle mm-hmm. but the more it's like nah we have like principles and ideals that we have to strive for um and Mieber says like the moralist is more closer to the prophet and that they can provide um a warning about where we're heading where we're going and that kind of sounds like this Mieber says it does not the moralists, this is what he's saying, the moralist quote, does not see that man is not free to extricate himself from the vicious circle of sin, even if he recognizes it is a vicious circle. Mm-hmm. Say that one more time. Um, so it does not see that man is not free to extricate himself from the vicious circle of sin, even if he recognizes that it is a vicious circle. Hmm. So Niebuhr is sort of like view of history is it just a circle we're just yeah it's, that it's ecclesiastes historical recurrence yeah stuff that we bring up a lot yeah and that's kind of what i'm trying to say yeah. is that these these categories were not invented with niebuhr like they had been going on for a long time of in fact in a lot of ways niebuhr is a response to modernity of the people like zach is describing mm. who have this blind optimism this blind faith in uh, human the human uh, achievement a uh, conquering of nature um and the topics the specifics will change because now we can uh we have drugs for senility or whatever Nero was on about mm-hmm. um so that topic has changed but we're kind of just moved on to another one and and we still haven't cured death yet i mean once we get there then i assume that we'll probably be moving into this next phase of meaningfulness um but i don't think we will conquer death there like i said there were, there will be buses in 2000 years you know the people that can run over people um mm-hmm. but who knows so uh cast shaded bertrand russell um love that by the way yeah that was good and then he brings into okay so then he says pride as a consequence of power gives man a false security um so pride is a child of power um uh, and but this is an important point he says pride as a consequence of power gives man a false security thus it enhances his insecurity Mm. what do you think he means by this i think it just kind of it means exactly what i was describing earlier is that when we enter an age of like what you might term progress or like achievement there is something that enriches life like medicine once we are able to cure like diseases like polio or something we're like oh man if we can do that what else can't we do Mm -hmm. and that itself creates a sense of like complacency It, it, it is harmful in the sense that it it makes us unprepared 
for the vicissitudes of nature and stuff like and that. And those are coming. Those, it's well, all let, coming. Let, let me get, yeah. let me give you one example. So, and Jeremy brings up this up in his article on Babel, I believe, um, that okay, say like I remember back when social media was new, Twitter was new. I was just brimming, people were just brimming with hope about the new Twitter machine and Facebook and all these types of things. It gives, it makes us cringe to think about it that way now, but they looked at the Arab Spring. Do you remember the, do you remember the Arab Spring when people were pointing to Twitter as being like uh, a, an important weapon in the democratization of the Middle East and Northern Africa? They were saying, Twitter is starting these revolutions against these tyrants. People are banding together and everybody's like, oh my gosh, Twitter is the great democratizer or, you know, social media, the internet is the great democratizer of the world. And then we get to the 2016 elections and we see how that completely turns upside down and in on itself. And it becomes the antithesis to all that we deem, you know, democratic. Excellent Uh, so it, it we always lead to this point that gives us some security about something mm-hmm. and then it make it ultimately makes us insecure then so we could never there's never been a point where we can st- uh, stare through a crystal ball and be like oh you know um we're going to arrive at this moment because every time we get there there's a new problem we weren't even thinking about uh that tends to pop up and say that we even cure death in some way although there will still be buses to run us over, um, there will, we, I think we can say just because the nature of history that something else will pop up that will, cause, that will point out our limitations and show it to us. And I tell you what, man, we need that. We need the constant, it's almost, it should almost be like a sacred event when we, when we take a step back and look at our own limitations. Have you guys ever watched the show Alone on the History Channel? Have you ever watched the show Alone? Anybody? No. Yeah. So the, not had a chance. No. These dudes get like twenty things. They're allowed a list of twenty things to take with them. They have to live on Vancouver Island and out in the wild with nothing. And you see this crazy these guys, and they have to live all by themselves and just just roughing it in the wilderness and it gets colder and colder and colder and you can see how as the show progresses they become more spiritual it's insane they start praying before meals oh wow. they start ritualizing things uh because kind of letting go of their power over nature and seeing nature once again more as an adversary and seeing their own limitations so clearly in their daily lives, it makes them more reliant upon God, which is a really, it's, it's, it's an interesting phenomenon. Well, so one of the, what's really interesting is we may not have to go, I mean, it's ironic that we're defending this other side because I mean, this Sunday I preached on the eminence of the apocalypse, not in terms of with an I, not eminence with an I, but eminence with an A. Um, And so my thought was, one of the things that I put before people is that the apocalypse has always been an imminent reality. It's always been an inherent part of the experience of humanity. Um, and that one of the ways that we can understand the apocalypse through what Jesus is saying, when he talks about not knowing the time or the day and so on and so forth, stripping away the, the, the imminent with an eye in the middle, um, the, the, it being right, right around the corner. If we strip it of its time and date, it's something that's imminently before us. Always we're recognizing that the apocalypse is a, a reality that could be, that is just before us, not in terms of time, but in terms of like 
its its closeness to us. And the illustration that I used was the Trident submarine or Ohio class submarine. They have 24 uh, Trident nuclear missiles. And basically it's said that they can end life on earth just through, and there's 18 of them out there. And so, um, and with that knowledge, we're always armed with the, the if we recognize that and we look at it, it, it tells us what Jesus is telling us in one sense, that it's the, the apocalypse is always something that's imminently before us. And our own ability to annihilate ourselves is it, it only further exposes what's already there. Um, and I think the other example that I use, because I was talking about the future, is killer robots. I mean, you can't read, you can't read a, a book about the future without encountering something about the killer robots, right? Uh, killer uh, AI robots. You know, there's various people, I mean, various people in the spectrum in terms of where they think that that will actually happen, but it's also constantly confronting us with the reality that we may just annihilate ourselves. So, I, I mean, I think that you're right in the sense that there's always something that's going to, even if we got rid of nuclear weapons, there would be the killer robots. And if, if we kill, got rid of the killer robots, there would be another thing that would kind of expose us to that reality. And I think Cliff's point is as well, as long as neighbors, I'm going to quote here in a second, going to be really nerdy, but is that that stuff will happen or, you know, we'll get to that point and then we'll realize in hindsight that, you know, maybe our pride, our complacency, our total faith in ourselves was unfounded. And it reminds me of um, Hegel's quote in The Philosophy of the Right, where he says, the owl of Minerva spreads its wings only at the falling of dusk. Mm. Oh, that's good. Yeah. I like the visual of that. Okay, so now uh, pride is, so this is a very meaty section of this. So pride is a child of, uh, and pride leads to, so pride, pride is a child of power and pride leads to complacency, but also uh, injustice is a, ch is a child of power of, and kind of when we say power, kind of like what everyone's talking about, what we're talking about is kind of uh, uh, the illusion of security, you know? Um, but uh, I think it's important to, to read this part right here. Um, this kind of closes out the section um, all about injustice. Kings and emperors, oligarchs and aristocrats, empires and civilizations all illustrate this perennial sin of all men. Seeking to transcend the insecurities of finiteness through power, they involve themselves in the insecurities of sin. Their power by which they intend to protect themselves against other life tempts them to destroy and oppress other life. So I, I was thinking about like, the, it's the richest people who have the most security, right? If I had a shack, I'm not going to install an alarm system, right? Uh, the, the guy with the most is the most paranoid about losing it. Um, and so he, he is more ready to even oppress life to, uh, to maintain his power uh, because that power is security. But sooner or later, the oppressed life, Niebuhr says, is endowed by the spirit of justice and vengeance with a strength that complements its weakness. Jeremiah accurately describes this process of history and this rise and fall of empires in the simple words, woe unto them that spoil and are not spoiled. When they cease to spoil, they will be spoiled. And he says, how curiously nature and sin are involved in this process. For human imagination transmutes nature's harmless will to live into a sinful will to power. So our very will to live is turned into a will to overpower over, over pe other people. 
Um, and then he gives the example, and this is kind of one of the more prophetic parts of this chapter, where, remember, this is 1937. He's writing this. He's about to talk about freaking Nazis, okay? And he says, France's vindictive oppression of her German foe, and we could probably like throw in Versailles in there, was prompted by genuine fears, lest she be destroyed if the foe should rise and regain his strength. But the spirit of vengeance against this injustice was the very force by which the foes arose. And now that he has risen, he seems to dream of gaining sufficient strength to become forever impregnable. The Germans speak with religious fervor of, quote, an eternal Germany. But the policies by which they seek to gain this strength make the whole of Europe insecure. In this insecurity, one may already discern the forces which, which will destroy German security before it is fairly established. Eternal Germany is haunted by the specter of dissolution, which is the reason why she dreams so fantastically of her eternity and seeks so frantically to establish it. So before the war even starts, Niebuhr is kind of positioning Germany as a spiritualized, as having a spiritualized sense of victimization. That when spiritualized, that victimization turns into a will to overpower, you know, and that, ladies and gentlemen, is exactly what happened. World War One was noted as the war to end all wars. <laughs> the right? irony. And it. out of that comes the confidence. Like, yeah, yeah we're never going to have a war again. And well, you know, not, yeah. not too much longer. <laughs> I love that you brought that up because I didn't even think about that. Like World War One, the war to end all wars. They set up that Treaty of Versailles and they they held Germany down with sanctions and they put these strict things on them uh, thinking, oh, we just got to do this and maintain it and we'll be OK. And man, that just their their uh, will to assure certain peace and security mm -hmm. is the very thing that created the beast. Yep, crazy. Last part, part no, second to last part, part four. The is what I'm calling the task of the true prophet. Let me just start by reading uh, the very beginning of this and just see what you guys have to say about this because I I love this so much. Once this is recognized, um, I guess the insecurities uh, in even our power and the, the injustices and stuff like that that come from power. Once this is recognized, Niebuhr says, the prophet is under compulsion to speak a woe, not only upon specific forms of human injustice, but upon the human heart for its perennial injustice and the recurring tragedy of its self-defeating sin then he will be able to offer no civilization, quote, assured peace in this place. Mm. So basically, I guess it's saying that we, once the prophet, we can say we, because we want to be this, we want to be prophetic. Uh, once we notice the injustices and pride that comes from these, this, uh, this illusory, form of security which he's calling power then it's on us not only to go after specific forms of human injustice but to be 
aware of the injustice in every human heart, that at the very root of the problem, I guess, um, is a sinful desire. I don't know. What do you guys take from this? It reminds me, as a kind of a contemporary example, the true the cast of the true prophet is not to give security to any nation because any I mean literally anything can happen. Nations fall and rise, but if you think about like the difference between Brian Holneber and Billy Graham and his family, who mm-hmm. you know we're going to be reading an article soon about the what is it called again the King's uh, Chapel and the King's Courts or something Sorry like that. that. Um, but Billy Graham and these sorts of like really big evangelical figures are so intimately tied to empire and the, the security of that empire. And a lot of Christians go around stating the reason why we need to instate Christianity as like a religion to reintroduce the Bible into schools is because of this passage, Second King, Second Chronicles 7, 14. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves, pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from them, they will hear them from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. That is thrown around a lot. It is thrown around so much in a perverse manner. But and th- this is an example of the false sense of security that people are given. Yes, yes. That promise of renewal, whatever that means for them. Gosh, at the heart of Christian nationalism is that, right, is that security. Yeah. Yeah. That God's nation type yeah. of stuff. And we need to redeem this. But that's like Niebuhr saying, like, that's bullcrap. That's not right. what we're about, you know? So the prophet has to speak tough. Yeah. About kind of disillusioning us of, of those illusions of power and, and the illusion of security. Yeah. Uh, they, they can't, uh, they can't be sugarcoating things. Right. I brought up um, the difference between, thinking back to the beginning of COVID, the difference between Trump and Fauci mm. and the way that they talked about the, the, the virus. Fauci was kind of bleak, very real, was full of warnings. Trump was like, oh, it's just like the flu, you know? Um, yeah, six million people around the world die. Right, so exactly. Yeah. Trump is like, trying to give us a false sense of security, but the prophet has the hard task of telling the, the, the absolute truth of, of, I have this underlined, um, the nation must be told that no nation can be strong enough to protect itself against all its foes, particularly since the strength arouses new enemies against it. That just reminds me of that, is that the, the prophet has to be of doom and gloom at times. You know, yeah, I think it's. Uh, I mean, yeah, I, I agree with you. I, there was a part of this that I really wanted to read. Oh, later on, he says the false prophet does not see the democracy. The democracy may be little more than the luxury of a stable civilization, in which the social struggle has been mitigated for the time being, because one side has so much power that the other side cannot challenge it, or because there has been so much comparative affluence. That injustice is obscured by the comparative comfort of the oppressed. Yeah. When, a, when a contracting economy destroys the total wealth of a society, and when the stabilized social equilibrium is disturbed, the social struggle breaks out afresh, and there is no guarantee that such a struggle may not break the forms of democratic arbitration of rights and interests. I thought it was like, I was like, man, that is, that is just so, it, 
it's almost like they believe the false prophet believes that the in the eternal city of democracy like democracy will go on in, in perpetuity and that false Love narrative it. is detrimental to actually this is the prophet saying what's hard you know what were the, yeah. the hard truth the bitter pill but in, in well, the reality of it as well because neighbor says that the false prophets today have latched on to the law of mutuality mm. as that as as if that is like the outworkings of christian doctrine that democracy is somehow ordained by god as the the law of life yeah that's right it almost reminds me of kind of the way that roman writers and poets would talk about the greatness of rome based upon uh the penimits or census the the bread and circus yeah um equating the luxuries with the goodness and the mm -hmm. greatness we tend to believe that our comforts and our preoccupation with um with yeah the luxuries of living in this society is equated somehow with the goodness of our democracy when really there is uh something lurking right yeah. deep in something something lurking that is very dysfunctional about our democracy deep down you know i this is like a like just an anecdote that probably i don't know if it's true or not i watched this so quote unquote documentary on amazon like a number of years ago on the roman empire that like what led the downfall of rome mm -hmm. and one of the examples this guy gives is that they made celebrities out of their chefs <laughs> oh <laughs> the like, oh that like, hurts i know yeah and so like I guess if we're taking the knee perspective is like they are like reveling in their luxury and yeah. in their stuff and equating that with their goodness, which yeah. the luxury can go away very hundred percent. Yeah. Like, so if you, and, if, if, um, and it actually uh, just provides a veneer yeah. that keeps us from actually inspecting the, the what's under the hood. Exactly. But if Gordon Ramsay is listening into this podcast, which he, <laughs> he most likely is, we're not talking about you, but keep on doing what you're doing. Yeah. He's the, He's the really good democratic example. <laughs> yeah, good. Um, I I gotta share this. So this was back when I was kind of first. This is in two thousand five. So I was just starting to write on Nieper and my MA, and it was the height of the Iraq War. So we invade, I think, in two thousand three, uh, two thousand five. Kind of everybody's on board you know, with, with, with this war. And it's almost like you're unpatriotic if you ask questions. Arthur Schle uh, Schlesinger Jr., who was friends with Niebuhr, he was still around. Um, and he wrote this really, I, I gotta say prophetic, like um, this really harsh telling you, telling us the truth about where kind of the way that we're talking about war and the war on terror and how these things could get us in a lot of trouble. And he wrote this piece called Forgetting Reinhold Niebuhr, which was all about this point. Um, he was really afraid of the rhetoric and spirit by which we were using our military. And it was at a time when, you know, like I said, most were very supportive of Bush and, and Schlesinger is like, we need to pump the brakes uh, on this. And this is what, uh, this is one of the paragraphs real quick um, that he wrote. He said, like all God fearing men, Americans are never safe. Okay, pick up themes here that we're, we've been reading about security and stuff. Like all God-fearing men, Americans are never safe against the temptation of claiming God too simply 
as the sanctifier of whatever we most fervently desire. Mm. This is vanity. To be effective in the world, we need, quote, a sense of modesty about the virtue, wisdom, and power available to us, and a sense of contrition about the common human frailties and foibles, which lie at the foundation of both the enemy's uh, demonry and our vanities, end quote. And then he continues, he says, none of, that, that was him, that was Schlesinger quoting Niebuhr. And then he says, none of the insights of religious faith contradict, quote, our purpose and duty of preserving our civilization. They are in fact prerequisites for saving it. So he's basically creating some elbow room for critique, critiquing the Iraq war, still quite popular. We, we, you know, and this quote from Niebuhr in here reminded me of this, that the nation must be told that no nation can be strong enough to protect itself against all its foes, particularly since the strength arouses new enemies against it. Man, that is, that's a haunting statement by Niebuhr in the time of Iraq um, and, and the war on terror. And we could debate the merits and the outcomes and stuff like that of, of, the, of these particular things. But Schlesinger brings up a tough prophetic truth right from the belly of Niebuhr himself, you know, and I love it. What a, what a great, uh, what a great moment. So let, let, if we're just gonna be calling this a day, let's just add a point of, um, maybe contemporary, because I mean, obviously the Iraq war is contemporary, but for now, in the age of Trump, in the age of, um, you know, Twitter, Twitterverse being whatever you want, mm-hmm. anti-democratic, mm-hmm. say, what would you think Schlesinger would say to us today about like what's going on with the upcoming elections? Schlesinger or Niebuhr, I don't know. Like with the upcoming elections, that's a good question. Um, I, I think that, okay, I think this, yeah. I think this, because Schlesinger was, was attacking kind of the blind, uh, the, the illusion that we have about our security forces, mm-hmm. you know, around the world and that type of a thing. And was saying that our, what we consider secure isn't so secure because we have to remember the frailty of humankind, even those in power, and blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. So I think we need to be looking at ourselves. If I'm if I'm a Republican, if there are Republicans out there listening to this, God bless you, first of all. But if you are, I would say you cannot go into this election just thinking, just believing in the absolute illusion of Trump's power, that somehow that is going to bring about, uh, bring America, make America great again. You know, that this one man carries within him uh, some kind of eschatological power to transform uh, the country back into the, its its f- former dreamed up power or something like that. There is no security in Trump, and there's nobody like that. There's no one man like that at yes, all. Yes, there's no one like that. That's why we have when we vote for Biden in you know a couple of years, when we vote for Tim Ryan here in Ohio or whatever, whoever we're voting for, we have to recognize that we have, we have to have a grain of salt with every single person that we vote for. There's, there needs to be some things we're uncomfortable with. And if there isn't, we should do some introspection if, if we aren't in some ways disturbed by even the people we're supporting. Mm-hmm. And I, I kind of, when I was, when you were reading Arthur's comment, I almost took that as a warning to Democrats as well. Yeah. 
Like we are so, it's kind of the amount of left-wing media I consume is probably the bad, but like, um, but the amount of people like, they, they offer subtle warnings after they say, well, when Trump goes away, it's done. Right. We got it. It's right. like, well, no, man, it's, it's, it's still that sort of illness is still going to be pervasive. And within, let's, let's say, cause you and I, Aaron and I were talking before the recording about a, yeah. a potential like best case scenario of, of Trump going to prison and the Republican party just falling flat on its face. Like, like, like the Republican did, like the Republican party did after Hoover and just becoming a minority and, you know, Democrats can, uh, you know, we should, we should be, you know, suspicious Mm-hmm. of even the Democratic Party getting too much power. Because there are elements even within the Democratic Party where we, it would be really easy to have a false sense of security there. Um, but even among them, even among good guys who we think are good guys, we, we, yeah. we have to remember that they are sinners and that they, um, that they are prideful and they are in it for the money and the fame, just like everybody else, you know? That's why we're in ministry. That's right. <laughs> uh, I'm in it for the money. I don't yeah. know how much you're making. Well, I do. You know how much I know exactly how much you're making. I'm a freaking boss. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but anyway, let, let's this last section, right? Do you have any thoughts on that, Zach? No, I, yeah. I mean, I think that you guys said it, that the, you have to hold both sides of suspicion, but. Yeah. And that security thing. I think the most the thing I get the most out of this is uh, out of Niebuhr on this particular topic is just the fact that we all crave security. Like it's just something that we all we all want to feel good about ourselves. And it's natural. It's natural, but it can become too it, it, in in Augustine's language. It can be a disordered love. Yes, that's right. Disordered love. I love that man. And so I, love, I love Augustine. Man. We need a, an Augustine shirt. Maybe when we open up the the neighbor um, merchandise that says, "Oh yeah, I disorder lead love you." No, <laughs> okay, that's bad. Okay, I actually like that. <laughs> <laughs> that just means I love you way too much. <laughs> I, I idolize you. Uh, okay, so anyway, this last section, I say we read all this. I think uh, when we read this last summer. Um, I think this is kind of where we ended our discussion is we kind of loved so much this last section of what he does with the test of true prophecy um, that we, you kind of just have to let it speak for itself. So, and then, and then we'll, I'll see what you guys have to say when, when we conclude. It says the temptations to false prophecy are so ubiquitous that any sensitive teacher of the word may well be driven to the edge of despair. It is so easy to condemn flagrant pride and to condone a subtle form of it. So easy to outlaw outlaw overt injustice and to sanction a covert form of injustice. To condone the security of power because its tentative necessity is recognized or accept injustice complacently as the pride and inevitable consequence of power, or to encourage men to the illusory hope that they may build a world in which there is no power, pride, or injustice. Brings it against himself there, love that. How can all of these temptations be avoided? They cannot. How can all these temptations be avoided? 
they cannot. All of us will always have something of the false prophet in us. Wherefore, we ought to speak humbly. We will mistake our own dreams for the word of God. Sometimes sloth will tempt us to make a superficial analysis of the moral and social facts which, with which we are dealing. Sometimes pride will tempt us to speak as if we had already attained or were already made perfect. Sometimes cowardice will tempt us to make concessions to the immense, blind, and stubborn self-righteousness with which every culture, every nation, and every individual wards off with the word of God. It is instructive that the same Jeremiah, who spoke so uncompromisingly against the false prophets, tried to return his prophetic commission to God. He was not certain that he was even worthy of it, and he doubted his courage to maintain the integrity of the word of God against the resistance of a whole generation which demanded security from religion, like magic, and rejected the prophet who could offer no security on this side of repentance. His commission was returned to him by the Lord with the demand that he, quote, separate the precious from the vile, end quote, in himself, so that he might be worthy to be a prophet. Thus, the church can disturb the security of sinners only if it is not itself too secure in its belief that it has the word of God. Oh, that one hurt. The prophet himself stands under the judgment which he preaches. If he does not know that, he is a false prophet. I got to say, before we started this, Aaron barged into my office, repeating that last, <laughs> that last sentence. That the, great line. The, prophet, the prophet himself stands under the judgment which he preaches. If he does not know that, he is a false he prophet. He wasn't merely repeating. I was, it was almost like Golden Globe material. Oh, dude, that was beautiful. You yeah. acted it out. I did. I threw something on the ground. Oh, yeah, it was good. Oh, it was yeah. inspiring. And I was like, shut up, let me finish this. But because uh, I was still working on the podcast. Stuff. He actually did say that. Kind of hurtful. It was good, though. So what did you guys take from this? It's kind of like he robs us of our complete security that we are could yeah. be, possibly be prophetic. I was going to say, when I was reading this chapter, I was kind of like, yes. Give me the definition of who these false prophets are. <laughs> I'm gonna and, go get them. Yeah, and then as soon as I finish, I'm like, oh wait, you're you're also a false prophet. I'm like, damn, <laughs> he's took out of my hand. I think this is quintessential Nieper in one sense. I mean, this is just you know any prophet that claims to be a prophet and be the definitive word from God should be dealt with any with a great deal of skepticism, and also it should. It's like a tool for yourself in terms of like, if you can't practice the humility necessary to um, recognize that you're not the mouthpiece of God, like fully, you know, um, then you shouldn't be in the game of trying to, uh, not the game, but in the business of trying to share the word of God with other people. I love the reluctance uh, of Jeremiah. And it, it reminds you of Moses, you know, of like, I can't do this. I was like grew up like hearing the story of Moses and him like saying, oh, I can't, I can't go to uh, Pharaoh. And God's, God's saying, yeah, you will. Um, <laughs> I remember, I remember thinking that was a weakness of Moses. Like, oh, you're not faithfully going yeah. to God uh, on God's behalf to Pharaoh. What's wrong with you, Moses? 
And then, you know, as I've grown, I've realized, no, that's, that's the sign of a true prophet. It's someone who's yeah. reluctant. That story of Moses is probably one of the better ones. I might have to steal that for another series. Yeah. The reluctant prophet is the true prophet. Well, that about does it for this episode of the Love Thy Neighbor podcast. Hit all the buttons, like, subscribe, give us a good rating. That kind of stuff uh, is good. That kind of stuff really helps the podcast. Um, write us a good review. Also, follow us at Love Thy Neighbor on Twitter for news and updates. Thank you, everyone, for listening and continuing to listen. Take care, everybody, and stay safe out there.